Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Morning. Morning, everybody. Happy New Year. My name's uh, Emmanuel Nazareno. Um, although my name suggests it, I am not from Nazareth, nor am I the Messiah, obviously. Um, I just have his complex. Um, thank God he has uh, unburdened me with that. Good segue. And forgiven me. Um, so I'm, I feel blessed to be reading for the, uh, this morning. Um, but before I do, I just want to share with you what the Bible means to me. Um, you know, it is the truth, it is God's word, and it's also the book of answers, right? So, you know, we are here for different reasons, to praise him, to worship him, like the band did so brilliantly this morning. But also, you know, for people who are seeking answers, you have hope and peace and knowing that God uh, will speak to you and give you his answers because he has spoken through the Bible. So it's all here. Right, so to set it up, um, Matthew 6, I'm reading um, verses 9 to 15. And, um, you know, Jesus is speaking to people um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, you know, this is the most, arguably the most popular prayer. So I'm blessed to read it with you. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, let, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Dear God, we pray for Howard today that you may use him mightily to speak to us. And Lord, we also pray for ourselves that you open our ears, our minds, and our hearts that we learn a lot from you this morning. Amen. Great job, Emmanuel. Um, happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be with you. I also am sort of having a slightly husky, deeper, some might say sexier voice than I might normally have. It doesn't pair up to Emmanuel's, of course, but uh, over the last few days, I've developed man flu. Um, so I've done really well to actually be here this morning. If you understand how serious a condition man flu is, you'll fully appreciate that. Uh, on Friday, to add to that, I also had my third bout of kidney stones, which was a truly wonderful experience for several hours. So I'm really um, weak this morning, but praying that God will give me great strength to speak to you on this important topic. It's the start of a new year, and it's a time when many people make what we call New Year resolutions. Anybody made a, a New Year resolution? Um, there's a few people here. I wonder, though, do we even know what New Year's resolutions actually are? I heard one comedian say that they're things that go in one year and out the other. Um, 
Some of you got that. That wasn't so popular, was it? <laughs> One of the most popular New Year's resolutions is about dieting, the desire to lose weight. Little rumor of a... <laughs> um, but what if the weight that you're carrying isn't so much all the extra stuff you ate over Christmas, the turkey and the chocolate, the Christmas pudding, the mince pies, all of that. What if the weight you're carrying that most affects you is guilt? It's the heaviness of shame. You might be saying, ah, oh, guilt, that's just, I don't know, some kind of construct, something that the church or people made up over time to control people with, to, to oppress others. And there's some degree of truth in that, that it's been abused. And I'm sorry if you're a victim of that, but guilt's real. And it's really oppressive. It's really discouraging. It's really depressing. And it's something that we all need freedom from. We need a liberty from it. And that's what today's all about. It is the ultimate weight loss plan. God's going to lift the load today to take some real heavy weight off you so that you can walk lighter, freer, happier, more joyful than ever. Sometimes we forget, what does that feel like? What does that, what does that even look like? Um, and so I like to use some images that sometimes help communicate that. So um, I think of Tim Robbins in the film, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's one of the great films, voted one of the great films of all time in our world. And he has been in 19 years incarceration and has just crawled through, if you can imagine it, a sewage pipe out into freedom for the first time. And he stands there in this iconic scene out there in the rain, sort of almost a Christ-like figure and projection, just celebrating, looking up to the sky. I'm free! The other image is of Alice Johnson, the 64-year-old woman after 21 years in prison, running, jumping, laughing, with tears in her eyes, charging towards her family. She'd been in prison for 21 years for a drugs offense, which she was guilty of, but the president of America commuted that sentence. She's now free and she's released with joy. These are just little trailers, tasters of the real freedom and joy that God offers you in his forgiveness. We're looking at part of a verse only this morning, forgive us our sins or our debts or our trespasses where we have stepped in areas where we have no rights to, where we've failed to step in areas where we should have to care and look after others. Forgive us our sins. It's the model prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, and it's an invitation to pray, passed down to us from the first century biographies written about Jesus. And it describes what is at the heart of the Christian faith. So easily lost, so easily forgotten today, Forgiveness. The Christian faith is uniquely and distinctly about forgiveness. The answer to the greatest problem human beings face. And without forgiveness, without the experience of forgiveness, we have no 
perspective, power, or persistence to forgive others. We won't be able to do it. And so we have to start here to set up next week's message. We've got to live in this experience of forgiveness. So we're going to look at it in three parts. Um, The problem of guilt, the place of forgiveness, and the promise of freedom. And then we're going to have a little exercise. This is what the piece of paper uh, on your chair is about. It's nothing really to be anxious about. It's really an invitation for you to use as we come to take communion a bit later on. We're going to invite you to write down a sin, a confession on that piece of of paper. We've done this a few times before, my wife and I, in different contexts. I just thought I'd start by saying a little testimony from the last time when we did this. It was at a seminar at a leaders' event. Somebody wrote, I went to your seminar on confession as you gave us a time to ask God what we needed to confess. I don't know what I expected God to do. Probably nothing as the rock I was carrying was too big and too distracting. But then God spoke to me about my sin and I felt such a sense of his presence as I wrote it on my piece of paper, tears almost drenched it. I got up and I walked to the bin to throw away my paper and as I did, I knew the rock had gone. I felt like I had lost such a lot of weight and I could walk straight again. God's going to do that today for many more people. So we're going to get into the first part, the problem of guilt. The problem of guilt. Are you facing reality? So I'm going to do this in three sections. Firstly, denial, and then doubt, and then despair. So denial. This is really saying sin doesn't exist. Sorry, guilt doesn't exist. There's no problem here. Angelina Jolie, the famous actress, she actually says that. I don't believe in guilt, she once said. But if you don't believe in guilt, you don't really believe in justice. You don't believe that wrongdoing deserves punishment. You have all sorts of problems that come out of that. If somebody killed your child because they were driving whilst drunk, would they be not guilty? Would there be nothing to complain about? It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense, does it? There's a real issue here going on. If you try and deny guilt, you're like pushing down an a inflatable balloon, trying to hold it down beneath the sea, and it just keeps coming up and up in all sorts of different ways in your life. You can't get away from guilt. Maybe you don't believe me. Well, hear what Martin Luther King Jr. says about it. Reality hinges on moral foundations. And there are moral laws of the universe just as abiding as the physical laws. And so we don't just jump out of aeroplanes or jump off high buildings for the fun of it. Because we unconsciously know there is a final law of gravitation. And if you disobey it, you suffer the consequences. There is a final law of morality. And if you disobey it, you suffer the consequences. You experience guilt. But then there's doubt. What do you feel guilty about? What, what should you feel guilty about? What, what shouldn't you feel guilty about? How do you know where to begin? Like, I, as a dad, I can feel guilty about all sorts of things. And there is something very real called false guilt. And we don't want to be feeling falsely guilty about things that we shouldn't be feeling guilty about at all, right? That would be, that would be silly. I can feel guilty as a dad about not being very good at music, so I can't teach my kids music. 
can't teach them like to play the piano or understand music. I don't know anything about that. I can probably only name like three classical composers. I'm pretty illiterate like that. I feel guilty. I want, I want them to experience that, the joys of music, being able to be creative and expressing themselves that way. Should I feel guilty about that though? No, that's, that's false guilt. There's something more serious that would be called survivor's guilt where soldiers go to war and one of their close colleagues would die and they come back and they experience this thing called survivor's guilt that they feel incredibly guilty that they have come back alive and yet their colleague is dead. How can that be right? And they suffer under the weight of that seemingly unendingly. Where does it stop and end? How do you deal with that? Well, you have to go to a higher authority that tells us what we should and should not be guilty about. It is the word of God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever that doesn't change, that we can line up our lives by rather than choosing to line them up by whatever we want to. The only way out of doubt in relation to guilt and knowing what is false guilt and true guilt is the word of God that defines sin for us. And then there's despair. Guilt is a real joy killer. It can be even crippling. There's a true story of a medical sociologist called Hans Kellner. And he had a client who was a woman who had a paralyzed arm. She was unable to move her arm. And they did all sorts of things to investigate what had gone, what, what was wrong, what, what, what was paralyzed biologically, what, what was not working, was it nerve damage? What, they couldn't find it out. And then they tried psychotherapy. And they discovered that this woman had a deep hurt, that she had used this very arm to destroy the life that was growing in her womb. And because of the guilt that she had experienced over that, she had paralyzed her arm. Guilt, very crippling. In all sorts of ways, at personal levels, ways that we consciously know, and sometimes often quite like this woman, unconsciously. There's a personal level of guilt for the wrongs that we've done and the hurts that we've caused. There's a collective level of guilt as well that's there. As people in a community, in a society, as people who are failing to steward this great planet that's been entrusted to our care, as we abuse it, as we put our own interests first rather than caring for this world that we live in, as we are complicit in institutional racism and systematic oppression of women in our culture and societies. We're a part of that. There's a guilt that's collective. What do we do with this? There's this inescapable sense of of wrongness that's there for all of us, unless, of course, our conscience is seared. And we've grown so cold that we don't really even know what's going on anymore. Guilt's so serious, it actually can be a cause. It's not the only cause, but can be a cause of mental health disorders. There was the head of one um, English psychiatric hospital who said that if, he said half of his patients could immediately be released if they could be assured of their forgiveness. Wow. Wow, that's pretty amazing. 
So today we are invited to pray, forgive us our sins, to release us from guilt. And notice very simply, it says our sins, plural, not just singular, that there's multiple sins that we all have and that Jesus' expectation is that we would all have to pray this prayer as a model prayer and pray it fairly regularly in an ongoing way and that there are sins. They're not somebody else's sins, that we each have our own sins that we have to take responsibility for and own. But, but where do we go with them? We've got them, you've got taking hold of them, recognizing them. What, what do you do with them once you've, you've got that? Well, that's the second point. It's the place of forgiveness. Are you going to the right address? Now, Last month, I was invited to speak at the Lawyers Christian Fellowship's Christmas carol service at St. Botoff's Church in the city. I arrived um, a little bit early, just wanted to get there on time, um, to discover that there was already a Christmas service going on at which I wasn't the speaker, which was a little bit confusing. <laughs> so I was there and I called the organizer of the event and said, you know, I think I'm here, I'm at St. Botoff's Church but there's already a service going on and somebody else is speaking at it. Have you, have you canceled me? <laughs> What's happened here? And then he said, you're at the wrong St. Botos. I'm like, oh, that's news to me. I didn't know there was more than one. Help, quick, run to a taxi. I get in a taxi, I say, take me to St. Botos. Like that, the taxi driver takes me to St. Botos uh, without Oldgate. Turned out to be the wrong St. Botolfs as well. So I'm then out of the taxi thinking, what do I do? I'm walking, following instructions. I finally make it to St. Botolfs without Alders Gate, which thankfully was the right place. And I was in time to preach a message about the wise men <laughs> following a star, thinking like, oh man, I feel like such a fool showing up. Where was my star to guide me? When it comes to finding the right address for forgiveness, there's a lot of false addresses out there that look really similar, sound really similar. I could say a few words about some of those churches that I went to, but I probably shouldn't. There's a danger in going to places to try and find forgiveness where all is taught is sentiment without substance. We need to go to the foot of the cross to find forgiveness. It's the only place, it's the only way. The foot of the cross, and I'd say not your face in the mirror. What do I mean by that, your face in the mirror? Well, I think quite often the way that our culture would teach us to deal with forgiveness is, is to turn to yourself. And there's three ways that we would turn to ourselves. The first is with self-indulgence. is to love yourself as you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not that bad. So-and-so is so much worse. What I have done is not that terrible. It's all right. You want to defend yourself, excuse yourself. The Puritan Thomas Brooks called it, he said it was like painting your sin with virtue's colors, saying that I'm not proud, I'm just assertive. Self-indulgence, being too kind to yourself. Then there is um, self-pity. Crying over the consequences of your sin because how it's badly affected you, it's made your life miserable, you're unhappy, 
other people don't like you. They think they're not very nice because you've done this and your reputation's damaged. And if more people find out, you're worried about what might happen. And it's a little pity party of like, oh no, <laughs> you know, I'm, oh. Yeah, the heart of it is self-absorption, which actually is really the essence of sin. The third way we can go to the wrong address, or the third wrong address, would be self-attack. You want to get in there first and beat yourself up and criticize and condemn yourself to try and maybe persuade that others should, that it's all right, God, you can let me off and others because I've already like beat myself up for this, so you can't do it. I've already criticized myself. You're too late. You can't criticize me. I've already done it. And it's this kind of pushing people away to sort of, you get the point. Now, some of you might be wondering, he's pretty good at explaining these three, isn't he? <laughs> That's because I've done all of them, and I've done them very often, and I can tell you that they don't work. Why don't they work? Because they're a fudge, and you're ultimately appealing to yourself. Who am I to decide that I'm judge and jury over what I've done wrong? What right do I have? What do I really know? about what I've committed and where it fits in the grand scheme of things. And, and then who are you to do that for yourself as well? Do you know what it results in? Cheap justice and empty grace. It doesn't deal with sin seriously or rightly or fairly or the wrongs that have been done. It, it lets me and others off the hook in ways that are, it's just not right. And it's not as loving and as gracious and redeeming as it should be. Only at the foot of the cross can we find the mercy that we need. What you may not know is that the word mercy actually is connected in Hebrew to the word for womb. Mercy always speaks of parental love and affection. I first heard about this actually from a story about the persecuted church where a man was asking a persecuted believer who was lined up with about eight or ten others with a hood on his face and they went down the line shooting Christian after Christian in the head. He was towards the end of the line and he survived. And he was asked, what kept you going in that moment? What were you doing as you were hearing people being shot for their faith? And he said, I just prayed. This prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, womb me, a sinner. He wanted to be in the womb and the heart of God's love and embrace. This helps us to understand the mercy of God, of how it works, the compassion, the generosity, the parental love and heart of God. And it also teaches us that it's unearned because a child in the womb cannot earn the love of their parent. They're simply loved. Mother loves the child in her womb. Not because the child has done anything, and so it is with God in his mercy. This is how William Reese describes the love and the mercy of God. On the Mount of Crucifixion, 
fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world with love. The cross is the only place where perfect justice can be done, where costly justice is done, where God himself, representing us in our place, takes the punishment that we deserve for our wrongdoing. Justice is done. This is not cheap. Sin is dealt with as seriously as it could be. It demands the death of our God himself. But it is also mercy. It is love. Because it is God suffering innocently in our place. How do you receive this mercy? You do it through confession. One of Jesus' closest friends, John, put it like this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, I never thought I'd be one of those people, but it just so happens that my wife and I have written a book about the whole subject of confession. It's called Spiritual Detox, and I would encourage you to read it, not because we'll make money out of it. All the profits go to Westminster Chapel and also the publishers, SPCK, not to Holly and I, but it will help you detox sin, guilt, and shame. What is confession? In short, confession is agreeing with God about how wrong and vile your sin is. It's siding with God against your sin and turning from it. It's instead of walking in darkness, it's choosing to walk in the light with him. Will you confess today your sin honestly and humbly before God at the foot of the cross? Remembering that sin isn't simply bad behavior. Sin is ultimately the glory of God, not honored. The person of God, not loved as he should be. I'd urge you to confess. Because it's the right thing to do and it honors God. But also for you for your freedom, for those images we saw, Andy Dufresne and Alice Johnson, lightness, joy, hope, walking away from this place with a greater sense of passion and joy of knowing God and his forgiveness. That leads to the final point, the promise of freedom. Are you living with assurance? 1 John 1, 9 speaks of a promise. If we confess, then our sins will be Forgiven, did you, did you notice that? As a, as a promise, as a guarantee. If you do this, this will happen. 
God cannot go against his word. He says it. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. And God said, and it is so. He cannot undo that. This is how God works. If you do this, then you'll be forgiven and cleansed of all wickedness and unrighteousness. What a promise. The moment that you believed and trusted in Jesus, all your sin legally was taken from you. And your status is that you are forgiven. But the reality is that often your experience in life as a believer is not the same. And we spend most of our time trying to marry up the legal status with our experienced reality. And confession is one of the keys that helps us to say, this is what God says, and this is me taking hold of that today, again, over these issues of sin in my life. When you confess your sin, you are looking at your sin for a time to see its wrongness, but so that you can more clearly look up from that to see and savor Christ and to dwell and reflect and rejoice in his forgiveness and his great love for you that you'd see him more and his grace because you have seen the depths of your sin more. You've seen the depths of his love more. And one of the ways that we do that through confession is as we confess, we think about what God's word says he's done to our sins. I'm going to give you seven biblical illustrations now of what that is. And the goal of this is to hammer home the reality that you're forgiven. Different ways that God himself is saying that. Why? Because I know that many Christians will live as he loves me, He loves me not mentality in our Christian life. A lack of assurance, an uncertainty. I'm not sure I'm forgiven today. I'm not not sure about this. Where God's love is red hot and he wants you to know, yes, I love you today. So here's the first. He sends away your sin. Sent away. That's the meaning in the Greek of the word that Matthew uses. Also John uses for forgive. Chapter 6, verse 12, Matthew's gospel. Aphiemi to leave or to send away. And it's a hyperlink back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, where the high priest would put the sins of the people onto this scapegoat, the goat, and then send it out into the wilderness, never to return again, i.e. these sins on the people, they are gone, gone, out of the way, never to come back again. Your sins are sent away. Psalm 32, verse One, they're lifted off. David praised this. This is his confession after committing adultery and murder. He talks about using this word forgive, and it literally means that the sins are lifted off of him. This burden oppressing him and and crushing him down is, is lifted off him. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress gives expression to this as he describes Christian, the main character, with this burden on his back, this rucksack of heavy weight. And as he comes to the cross, the rucksack falls off and rolls down the hill, this crushing burden gone from him and into, it says interestingly, an empty tomb where it is seen no more. Psalm 32 continues though, covered. Your sin is covered, it says. It's no longer seen by God. He puts this robe of righteousness over you. So it's covered. The sin that you feel might still be there, it's not visible to him anymore because he's reclothed you with his own righteousness. 
Psalm 103. Sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Your sin is removed from you. How far is the east from the west, by the way? Have you, have you thought about that? It's the infinite opposite, right? You can't make that journey. So it's basically like saying your, your sins have gone and it's impossible for them to return to you. It's an impossibly to pass reach. They're just gone so far away. And they're not remembered. At least four times in scripture, I'm sure there may be more, Hebrews, Isaiah, God says, I remember your sins no more. I remember your sins no more. I remember your sins no more. When you come to God and you're talking to him about sins you've already confessed, he might well say, what sins? I don't remember those sins anymore. And then Micah chapter seven two beautiful illustrations here. God says that your sins are trampled underfoot, crushed to non-existence, pestle and mortar ground down. Think of Jesus stamping on Satan's head. Genesis chapter three, crushing Satan and his power. Your sin is trampled upon by God himself. It has no power, no authority in your life anymore. It's been destroyed. And then in the next part of that verse, he says, he has cast them to the depths of the sea. He's drowned your sin to a point where it cannot return anymore. Think of the people of God, the Israelites, on their way out of Egypt. And they'd committed idolatry and all sorts of things, kind of become syncretistic with, with Egyptian religion. They, they, they had sins, but all of that sin was drowned in the, the Red Sea as they were going through and on their way out. Their sins were drowned. This is the, the image. They were drowned, cast to the depths of the sea so that they would enter the promised land as a new people. Their sin would not be permitted to carry on with them into the future. That was the idea, and neither is it for us. We are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come, the sin is to be left behind us in the old life and we are to walk forward in the love of God. Corrie ten Boom, this amazing woman of faith, concentration camp survivor, she says of this verse that when God throws our sins into the deepest sea, he also puts a sign up saying, no Fishing. Right? You need to stop fishing. When you come and confess your sins in a moment on this piece of paper, God's going to send them away. He's going to lift them off. He's going to cover them. He's going to remove them. He's going to remember them no more. He's going to trample upon them. And he's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Gone, gone, forever. So who are you to argue with him about that? Hey, Who are you to say, nah, (laughs) you're wrong, God. Seven times wasn't enough for me. I didn't quite get the point. I'm not sure. I still think they're kind of bobbing up to the surface. Maybe you attached a cork to them or something and they're refloating. What? 
You're forgiven. You're forgiven. That's what God wants you to know more than ever as we start this new year. He wants you to revel in his forgiveness. To know that is your identity. You're a new creation. Do not let the world, the flesh, or the devil define you any more. Let what God says about you define you. That's your real truth. That's what you're to live in, to live under day after day and confession and especially with communion. These are the ways that we recalibrate to what's real and what's true about us, not what others would say about us. And as we discover this, we realize that those who have been forgiven much, those who understand just how forgiven we are by God, are able to love much and love an extraordinary and radical and sacrificial and truly wonderful ways that will change this city and this world. Let me take a moment to pray. We're going to worship. But as we come in that moment, you might already want to start in this next song, be thinking about what to write down. Simple confession. There's no particular formula of words. It's just what you feel from the heart is right. After the song, we'll queue up coming for communion. You could have time to do it then. And we'll just invite you to come and just scrunch your confession up and put it in the bin as an expression of saying, this is gone. By faith, this is gone. I'm confessing to God and I'm holding on to this promise and then doing the same through communion. This is what communion speaks of as well. We'll reinforce it with that and we'll worship some more. But let me pray and then we can worship. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have forgiven us. Lord, you forgive us again and again and again and again and again. Forgive us for doubting you. Forgive us for not recognizing the depths of our sin. Forgive us for not recognizing the depths of your love. Thank you for coming and reminding us in this most extraordinary way by dying in our place on the cross. Your blood. Lord, the water that was turned to wine cleanses us of sin. We're so grateful to you. Make today a day of freedom, a day of rejoicing, a day of hope, a day to come out from darkness and lies and guilt and shame. Lord, bring liberation through the power of the gospel. We pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Have your way. Let us meet with you. Let us meet with you now in these moments as we write, as we worship, shortly as we take communion. Increase your presence amongst us, Lord. We want to know you, to encounter you, to experience you, to love you, and to love others. Sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.